last time we were in chapter um, 8 and we were thinking about Ezra as a leader who got stuff done. And we were thinking again how he led a second group of exiles back to Jerusalem from Babylon after the first group that came back with Zerubbabel. Um, We're going to see now in chapter 9 and 10 what he did when he came back to Jerusalem. Um, And uh, I think today it would be especially helpful if you have a Bible open in front of you so that you can follow the themes that I'm going to try and develop with you. Um, I've entitled this session Conviction Rather Than Coercion. And uh, what I mean by that is not conviction in a criminal sense, but I want to remind you of a principle. No leader can ever force or coerce anyone to do anything, really, can they? For real change to happen, it has to come from within the person. Real change has to come from an inner conviction in the people's hearts themselves. Now, of course, leaders can try to impose change by all sorts of means. They could bribe people. That would be one way. wouldn't be a very honourable way. They could threaten people. That would be another way. But uh, people don't do their best work as a result of fear. In the end, real, significant and lasting change has to come from inside the person, doesn't it? Just let me give you an illustration. During this past week, I came across a blog from a Christian leader and I, I, was, I thought this was so good. I was, I'm going to read uh, some of it to you. Um, this, this is what uh, this guy, his name's John. This is what he said on his blog. Once I heard my wife uh, talking on the phone with someone and I heard her say... You can't force or demand spirituality. And that is so true. When that takes place, mostly bad things happen. People feel controlled, manipulated, pressured, instead of invited. Jesus invites us to follow after him. He does not say, behold, I stand at the door and break it down and come into your house. At the root of forcing or demanding people to be in a relationship with God is the illusion that we can change people. But it can't be done. Or, if it does appear that our guilt manipulations have worked to change someone's heart, what we have before us is a prisoner, captive and in chains. I know that when someone tries to change me, I get this weird angry feeling that makes me want to get away from them. Parents, take note. You do not control your child's heart. Spouses, take note. You do not control your significant other's heart. So let it go. Many years ago, God spoke to me and told me, John, why are you trying so hard to change other people when you can't even change yourself? All this is different from setting boundaries and having household expectations and the fact that we can't control others doesn't mean that we have no right to speak the truth in love to others but listen to this paragraph while I usually resent people who try to change me 
I have been greatly influenced by a few people in my life. Influence is different to control. And the heart of influence is getting before God consistently throughout life and crying out to him, change my heart, O God. Enter deeply into a life process of personal transformation and the breakup that happens inside you will be used by God to influence other people. The real influences in my life have been people who worked on their own souls before God and did not expand their lives trying to do the impossible thing of changing the hearts of others. As I've been with these very few people, God has used what he was doing in their lives to speak to me about my life. What a wonderful, grace-filled way for God to do this. No apologies for reading at length from that. I think that's really interesting. It is true, of course, that leaders must set boundaries. Leaders must speak plainly. But in the end, no one can force anyone else to have faith or to change. We can't control ourselves, let alone one another. Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament knew this. A couple of years ago we were studying 1 Thessalonians. And uh, Paul said this, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. As he preached to them, He wasn't trying to coerce them, but as he preached to them, God's Spirit took hold of God's Word and they were convicted in their hearts and real change happened because it came from within by God's grace. Now, remember that Ezra, uh, this young leader, is coming back to Jerusalem with a second group of exiles. God's people have been carried off into captivity in Babylon and now by God's grace, the political landscape has changed and they're coming home. The first group came home 80 years before, and they rebuilt a temple eventually, after some delay. But this group, led by Ezra, are not coming to rebuild, but to reform. The people are very near to home, but their hearts are still far from God. They're in the right place, but their hearts are not right. They've got their structures right, but they're really spiritually very mixed up. And Ezra is coming to lead them through some painful and difficult spiritual change. He's aiming to reform them, to restore them, to awaken them, to stir their hearts to be true and faithful to the God they profess to worship. How does he do that? Does he bribe them? Does he threaten them? Does he coerce them? Well, the more I've studied this man, Ezra, the more I admire him and the more impressed I am by his approach here. The challenge here is that chapter 9 and 10 hang together as one issue, really. And we haven't got time to really unpick all of it. And there's, there's some difficult issues that Ezra's dealing with. So what I want to try and do is explore chapter 9 today 
and look at how Ezra as a leader behaves how he how he um, convicts them rather than coerces and forces them and although we'll explore some of the issues because we need to get the backdrop we'll leave the issue of intermarriage until next time and we'll consider that in a bit more detail from chapter 10 next week and we'll do a little review of what we've learned in the book as a whole as well first of all I want to try and give you a little overview of what's going on so there's the word overview very helpfully Uh, number one Ezra arrives and uh, if you look back at chapter 7 and verse 8 Uh, Ezra himself tells us that he arrived in the fifth month of the Jewish calendar that is Uh, the second thing that happens here is that the leaders come to him so we're in chapter 9 now after these things had been done the leaders came to him and said and so the leaders confessed to Ezra widespread sinful behaviour the leaders come to Ezra and say, Ezra, we've been getting it all wrong. From the top to the bottom of our community, we're all mixed up. Now, let's just pause a minute, because I just want to talk about this issue of intermarriage. If you you look at uh, chapter 9 and verse 2, let's just, um, well, verse 1, let's just read that again. The leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests, the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices. And we get this list of different pagan nations. They've taken some of their daughters as wives themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. (coughs) So the issue is intermarriage with foreigners. It's widespread, it's tolerated across the whole community and even the leaders, the priests, the officials, the leaders have set the tone for that. Now, this is not an issue of racism or xenophobia or superiority. It is an issue of purity. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, travelled to the land of Canaan that God had promised they would occupy the land was already occupied by people who were doing the most detestable things he even uses the word detestable here in some cases their pagan religion involved children being sacrificed it involved much immorality superstition and very extreme forms of paganism and I suppose what was happening then was that God was doing two things he was judging those nations for their extreme paganism while at the same time providing for his people a nation, a a land for them to live in it's very complex but God's clear instructions to his people then was I want you to drive out these pagan nations and displace them it wasn't because they were superior it wasn't even that it was exclusive because there was opportunity for some of the people in those nations to actually join the Israelites and become worshippers of the true and living God. There was still grace there. There are two passages that detail God's commands and the reasons behind them. If you're taking notes, you can find them in Exodus 34, verses 1 to 
verse 11 to 16, and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 to 4, God commands them not to make treaties with ungodly people or to settle down into a lifestyle of compromise. And the reason that God gives them is that they would be ensnared by the paganism. God commanded them to have nothing to do with other false pagan gods and not to marry into these nations in a way that would dilute their worship of the true and living God. Now we've got to appreciate what's going on here with Ezra. They come back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Some of the Jewish people hadn't been carried off into exile. They'd been left behind. They'd perhaps married had families some of those families owned land some of them would have come to prominence and held positions of influence you imagine as you come back from Babylon and you think I'm going to go to the plot of land where my great granddad lived and you've got nothing in your pocket you own nothing and you find that there's another family living there but they have a good looking daughter and you think, actually, I, I could actually marry into this family and I could begin to state my claim for the land that my forefathers lived in. You can see the way that over a period of years, the temptation to kind of marry into some of these families would have been very strong. And what happened was that these these Jewish uh, people were losing their Jewish roots and beginning to embrace the pagan gods of their new families. The whole community had no sense of identity or purity and the whole thing was a mess. The exiles come home and for some of these exiles uh, there was a limited material resource they, they had no land, no money and had to survive I suppose their problem was that their primary concern wasn't for purity but for comfort for ease and it's like for them it was like well we're God's people but God won't mind if we do what we have to do to live get by and eventually God himself becomes a kind of relic from the past or a kind of hobby or an add-on rather than the living God who they were meant to live with their lives built around. There's some evidence in the Bible that some men were divorcing their first Jewish wives so that they could marry foreign ones because that was more prudent for them to do that. If you read the prophet Malachi chapter 2, God scathingly uh, condemns his own people for breaking faith with their own wives so that they could marry. It's almost like the Jewish men were saying, I'm going to trade my wife in for a better model who owns more land, has more money, more resources. Sorry, love, but I'm going to marry this lady instead. These are God's people. They had a temple. God had actually brought them home by his great power and love and concern. But they couldn't see that their corporate lives were anything but godly. 
was a mess. Well, we'll deal with some of the implications of that more from chapter 10 next week. But the first thing here is that the leaders come to Ezra and they basically own up and say, Ezra, we've really sinned and messed up here. The third thing that happens then is that Ezra is appalled. Just look with me at verse 3. Uh, Ezra turns into a kind of demented madman. When I heard this, I tore my tunic, my cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. Is he having a little sulk, a little strop? He kind of goes on, he seems to go off on one completely, doesn't he? He's completely and utterly, he seems shocked and seems to behave like a demented person. Fourthly, Ezra then prays publicly later that same day. It says in verse 5, Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to Lord my God and prayed. But in chapter 10 and verse 1 that Dawn read to us, you can see there it says, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. So Ezra here is praying at the evening sacrifice at the temple. In the temple courts, he throws himself down and prays in a loud voice to God. And a crowd gather around him, listening to what he's praying. And then we're told that the people begin to join in. And it says there that they too, at the end of verse 1, it says they too wept bitterly. They're beginning to see what Ezra can see. He's not coercing them, but he's convicting them. And they begin to see something of the seriousness of their corporate situation. And they too begin to feel pricked. And they begin to weep with Ezra. The sixth thing that happens is that the leaders then ask Ezra to help them. In verse 2, this man Shechaniah steps forward and again confesses this sorry state of affairs. But he says, in spite of all of this, there's still hope. Come on, let's sort this out while we can. It's an amazing response. And it's coming from within. Notice that the leaders came to Ezra in verse 1. And now Shechaniah comes to Ezra in chapter 10. He isn't forcing them to do something or imposing himself on them. These people are responding because they're convicted in their hearts. I want you to get the timing here though because all of the things there in steps 2 to 6 happened in the ninth month. Uh, we know that from chapter 10 and verse 9. Within the three days they, they made a proclamation for all the people to come to Jerusalem and within three days they all came and on the twentieth day of the ninth month all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed. So Ezra turns up in Jerusalem in the fifth month. All of the steps two to six happen around about the middle of the ninth month. You got that? That means there's over four months since Ezra arrived 
and the leaders coming to him in verse 1 confessing all of this sin so the obvious question is what on earth has we been doing for the last four months the difficulty is he must have known what was going on surely he must have known what was going on in this community he's not stupid or blind is he but on the other hand, why does he appear to be so shocked and go bananas like a demented man when he hears what the leaders tell him? As if, you're joking! Why? And he starts kind of... Is he just faking it with great style? Is he just putting on all this grief to show them how bad things are? A bit more to it than meets the eye, isn't it? Just look back to... Um, Chapter 7 with me and verse 10. Chapter 7 and verse 10. Well, we, we could read from verse 8 really. As we arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month, he had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observation of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra has come to Jerusalem because he's a teacher. What is he teaching? Well, chapter 7 tells us that he's teaching them what God's word says. The law of the Lord is for a Jew. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Torah, the law. He has devoted his life to studying this word so that he can teach it to others. His job is to remind them of what God says and his whole life is given over to saying to them come let me show you what God is like let me remind you of what God has done let me show you what God is doing let me give you a heavenly perspective on what's going on in your lives let me show you who you are what your roots are where you're going where you've come from let me warn you and encourage you and stir you. Oh, come and listen. He's a teacher. What a job. What a privilege. How, how amazing is it for a man to be able to teach God's word to other people? I, I, can say, I can say that. It's the most exciting thing. I wouldn't be doing anything else in all the world than studying to teach other people what God's word says. How hard it is. What a privilege it is. What was he doing for four months? I think he was teaching them from God's word. He isn't forcing them. He isn't coercing them. He isn't imposing something on them. He doesn't crash in like a bull in a china shop. Let's sort all this mess out. What he does is he turns them to God's word. And he teaches them. He just faithfully tells them what God has already said. 
If you read what it says in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, come back at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning for the next instalment. I'll give you some more and I'll explain it all to you. And the people are listening. And slowly it's dawning for four months and it's dawning on them. What on earth are we doing? We've completely missed the whole point of what we are as God's people. Well, you can see why I call it conviction rather than coercion. You can't, no leader can force anyone to do anything. But what Ezra do is he shines a light into their hearts from God's own word. Let me give you some evidence. Not all commentators agree with the analysis I've given you. So let me give you some evidence to back up what I'm saying. Um, did I have a slide? Oh yes I did, that's good. can't remember my slides. Number one. Ezra delegated less important things. Some commentators disagree. Because they say Ezra must have had his hands full with all sorts of political things. He had people to see. He had local governors to talk to. He had things to smooth over. He had backs to slap and hands to shake. The reason he's shocked is because he's been busy messing with all the problems of state and management. Look at chapter 8 verse 36. They also delivered the king's orders to all the royal satraps and to the governors of trans-Euphrates who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. He's been going around doing political stuff. He hasn't got time to teach. But when you look at the whole paragraph from verse 35, it says there, then the exiles who had returned from captivity did these things. It doesn't say Ezra specifically did these things I'm sure he got involved where he needed to I think the sense there is that he delegated all sorts of other messengers and emissaries to go and smooth things over while he gave himself to the main work of teaching there's another little clue Bingo. It's gone to sleep. I, I think there's another little clue that he had prior knowledge of these issues. Just go with me to chapter 10 and verse 3. This man, Shechaniah, after hearing Ezra pray, remember this is only just kicked off this very day, and Shechaniah says, Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord. That's an interesting little phrase. In accordance with the counsel of my Lord. That's Ezra. In other words, Shechaniah seems to imply that Ezra has already been giving them some counsel on this issue prior to this day. Why would he say that? This is not a shock to Ezra. He's already been teaching them about these issues. He hasn't forced it. He's taught them faithfully. He's waited for the gravity of the situation to fully dawn on them. And when they now come to him, he's ready to deal with the issue. And Shechaniah says, this is just like the advice you gave to us already. In fact, when you read verse 4, it's almost like they're expecting him to lead them in this matter. 
when you read verse 4, he says, Rise up, this matter is in your hands, we'll support you, so take courage and do it. It makes me wonder whether this is the very reason Ezra travelled in the first place. He's been gentle and patient and careful and faithful. He isn't trampling all over the situation, trying to force things. He knows that if real change is going to happen, it has to come from within their own hearts. Thirdly, just another piece of evidence, the confession of the leaders in chapter 9 and verses 1 to 2 doesn't seem to me to be a spontaneous out of the blue thing because of the way that they talk about the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, these words are a direct quotation from Deuteronomy and Exodus with the addition of the Egyptians who weren't in the original list. In other words, the confession that they make and the way they talk seems to be biblical. And the words they use, are, they're not random words, they're a quotation from the very passages that I think Ezra has been teaching them from. And that's another implication that Ezra has been carefully teaching them. Did you get that? And just think with me as well, just fourthly, about this question of whether he's faking it. You know, is it possible to kind of fake upset, you know, and turn into a demented man and start ripping your clothes? And when you go to chapter 10 and verse 6, there's a very interesting. Uh, occurrence there. Ezra has been weeping and praying and then in chapter 6 it says Ezra then withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan son of Eliashib and while he was there he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of these exiles. Do you notice there that he's just as concerned in private as he had been in public. Do you get that? He's not putting that on. He's deeply moved, isn't he? What he has been in public is not a charade. It is the public face of a man who has been seeing things from God's perspective for a long time. As I read this account then, and there's four pieces of evidence, I... I I can't help but think that Ezra has come from Babylon 900 miles because this community is in a mess. He's come to reform them, to challenge them. And he hasn't taught them his own opinions. He's taught them faithfully from God's word. And God's word comes to them with fresh power. They begin to see things that they couldn't see before. One writer I was looking at this week said, instead of whipping them into action, Ezra pricks their conscience so that they urge urge him to act. That's the difference, isn't it? He's not coercing them, but he's convicting them. What Ezra is doing here is looking for a response, isn't he? He knows he can't force it. He's looking for them to come and own the seriousness of the problem. He's looking for conviction to arise in their own hearts. 
And when these leaders come and confess, Ezra is ready to lead them in repentance and change. We'll spend some time in a moment just looking at this prayer and what Ezra actually says. But what is the application for us now at this point? The issues are different, but the application is surely that only you can respond to God's word. No one else can respond to God's word for you. No one can force you to change or to believe or to have faith or to embrace the good news that God has for you. It has to come from you within. And there is a sense, biblically, that all of us together have a great responsibility to hear and to respond to God's word for ourselves. There is a sense that all of us need to get up and do business with God. All of us need to believe his promises and his warnings. To hear him when he gives us the answers to our questions and desires and yearnings. When God speaks, it is only you who can let him have his way in your life. No one else can do that for you. It's very interesting, isn't it? That guy who was blogging at the beginning said, Jesus didn't say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock and will smash the door down and force my way in. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door and lets me in, no one else can do that for you. And Ezra as a leader knows that with these people, only they can respond to God's word to them. Ezra can't force that or impose it. Or I want to say to you, it is so crucial, isn't it, for all of us to take advantage of all the opportunities we have to hear and reflect on God's word. Isn't Shechaniah's response brilliant? He basically says, come on, let's do it. We've completely missed the point, but not anymore. It's not over. There's still hope. God, by his grace, has given us opportunity to put things right. And this is the great hope that God has for us, isn't it? That there is space for us to repent and turn to him and believe his promises. Now, let's just spend uh, the rest of our time very briefly looking at the details of what Ezra actually does. Because I think his praying is not a charade, it's part of his teaching them. And we've seen that he does it all very deliberately. There is a point to all of it. He's not just acting, he really does feel the grief and the seriousness. But um, I want to just say three things. First of all, the symbolism. It's a bit alien to our culture, this, isn't it? You know, it would be a bit odd if you came to church. And I suddenly started ripping my shirt and pulling my hair and, you know, pulling the stubble off my chin, you know, and, and then sitting down on the front here and getting into a bit of a strop and a sulk. Maybe we're just very reserved as British people and we don't do that sort of nonsense, do we? But here, all those three things happen pretty quickly. He rips his clothes, he pulls his hair out, literally. But I'm pulling my hair out today. He literally is. And then he sits down, appalled in silence. 
Well, I've been having a little read up on some of this this week. It does seem alien to us. But this is what I'm led to believe. The tearing of clothes is a sort of stripping off. It is, it is really a reference to being laid bare. To being completely exposed almost to the point of nakedness. Often, people would reenact this sort of cloth tearing at a bereavement or a funeral procession. And the point of it is, it's like part of me is dead. I'm laid bare, I'm filled with grief. Even my clothes can't hide my profound sense of mourning. It's the same with the hair. Hair was a kind of glory. A full beard for a Jewish man was a sign of dignity, wisdom. So here's a man who is stripped naked, shaved clean, and then stunned into silence, speechless. There are no words to say at this moment. It is like he is acting out, we're all dead. The community that we're part of has the sentence of death hanging over it. This is his way of saying visually, Oh God, you are right and we have got it so wrong and we really deserve nothing from your hand. We are like men sitting on death row waiting for the judgment to fall on us. That is the picture that he's trying to act out. It's really solemn, isn't it? And serious. And look at what it says um, in verse 4. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness. They're beginning to see the seriousness of what has been going on in their community. So the symbolism is important. Second thing, very quickly, is Ezra's identification with them. He falls on his knees, his hands spread out to God, he begins to pray. And does he pray, oh God, judge these wicked people and save me. Is that what he says as a leader? He's not guilty of these sins. Look how quickly in his prayer he moves from the word I to the word we. Verse 6, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great because of our sins. We and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword in captivity you see where he's going? It's corporate, isn't it? Rather than individualistic. I think it's quite hard for us to get this with our Western mindset. I think a lot of this is hard for us to get with our Western mindset. I'm doing my best to try and um, help us to understand it. I've been doing a bit of background reading this week about different cultures in our world. And people who study these things, apparently, they, they, they rate countries based on their individualism or collectivism. And Britain, or the UK, is considered to be up in the 90s for being a very individualistic culture. 
So the idea is you look at a culture or a nation and you ask, how do people see themselves? Do they see themselves primarily as individuals or do they see themselves primarily as part of a group? What is most important to them, themselves or the group? Good question to ask that, isn't it? In the West, we are massively individualistic. We think in terms of what's in it for me. But in many other cultures, that's not so true. There's a collective mindset, and the question is, how does what I do affect the whole? Something very different about those two extremes. Actually, the truth is, we we are both individuals and part of a community, aren't we? So both are true, really, but culturally, we tend to emphasise one or the other. So maybe that's something for you to think about. Are are we individualistic or are we group focused? Just as an aside, I was just reflecting on this and what's really interesting about this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Because God exists in three distinct persons and yet he is one. And the oneness within God doesn't obliterate the individuality of the Father, Son and Spirit and yet their individuality is expressed most fully in giving to the whole isn't that interesting it's a massive mystery isn't it the Trinity but right there is the secret of what makes us human we are distinctly individual and yet we're made for community God is both individual and relational. And he was like that before he created anything. He wasn't just a lonely single being on his own. But the whole trinity head over heels in love with one another. The trinity is the original family, the original group, the original community. That operates on the basis of absolute honesty, love and joy. There's no shadow of unfaithfulness or of control or manipulation. Tim Keller describes the Trinity as a dance. And it is a dance that God invites us to participate in. I think there's something very representative about Ezra's prayer as well. He's praying on their behalf. This is a biblical idea as well, isn't it? Adam was the first man he sinned and the whole race is caught up in that it's like he's the head the representative human being the one through whom the whole race is blighted but Jesus thank God is another head isn't he when we're connected to him as individuals we become part of a new race he is now our new head his righteousness is ours his merits become the basis for our new status so maybe we've got something to say to our western culture here that is all about me, myself and I Christianity by definition is not that no one is ever saved to be isolated The whole point of the gospel is to be brought into a community. And here Ezra prays 
on their behalf, almost as their representative. Remember, people are listening to this. He doesn't distance himself from them, but accepts his place as part of this faithless community. He doesn't say, God save them, but, oh God, save us. I don't, I don't know, I can't help but see something of Jesus here. Is it not the case that Jesus volunteered to be stripped of his glory, dignity and power when he came to earth? He identifies with sinful humanity. I've told you the story before, there's a famous Christian author called John White, when he was in medical training... He had to go as part of his training to talk to a doctor who was running a clinic for people with sexually transmitted diseases. And all the people in the clinic were sat in chairs along the corridor. And he came to reception and the reception said, if you'd just like to take your seat there, the doctor will be with you in a moment. And he was like, no, no, I don't want to sit with all these people because it looks like I'm kind of one of them and that's not I've come to see the doctor about something else that's how it is isn't it Jesus he doesn't come and say I'm not one of them he comes and identifies with sinful humanity he comes and sits with us in our grief actually Jesus goes a lot further than Ezra did he didn't just pray for us but he comes so that his guilt would be on his shoulders. Our guilt would be on his shoulders. He pays the price for our guilt. He dies the death that we deserve. Utterly stripped. He doesn't just act it out, but he endures it fully. So that in him we can be free from sin and guilt and ultimately death itself. Thirdly, the sin of presumption. I just want to touch on this very briefly and then um, we're done. The logic of this prayer is very compelling. In verse 8, Ezra remembers God's kindness to them. And what he's really saying is, we had sinned before and that's why we got ended up in exile. But you've been really gracious to us, God. And you didn't forget us or abandon us or completely crush us. You saved a remnant and you brought us home. You even inspired the kings of Persia to give us all the stuff to build our temple. Lord, what you have done for us is amazing. You've given us a secure place to worship you. You've brought light to our eyes, relief to our hearts. You've shown us that you didn't reject us. And then Ezra says, what have we done? We've then gone on to make all the same mistakes our fathers made. And his argument here is, if God rescued them from their previous folly and brought them home, and that is how they then treat God, what hope is there now of God being kind to them again? This time there's a danger that God will just completely wipe them out. This is not God being unfair. From a justice point of view, their behaviour has been shocking. This is the sin of presumption. What, what I mean by that is that they presume that God is love. 
they presume that God won't mind. They presume that it doesn't really matter how they live. It will all turn out all right in the end because God's nice. The fact that God's rescued us and brought us home once means that we're safe, so we may as well just switch off. But the issue here is, this is what Ezra brings home to them, that to sin in the face of God's kindness makes the sin even worse than it would be, doesn't it? It's like slapping the person who's giving you something right in the face, isn't it? It's inexcusable. It makes their guilt bigger than it would have been. They have no excuse. And there's other times in the Bible when this happens, doesn't it? When they came out of Egypt during the Exodus, God does some amazing stuff. He rescues them. Moses goes off up a mountain and they think, well, he's been gone a while, hasn't he? I don't think he's coming back. And they come up with a crazy idea of melting all their gold down and making a golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain and wants to throw the tablets at them. It's like, whatever you're doing, it's only ten minutes since God just brought you out of Egypt and you're worshipping a cow. But the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden is even worse, isn't it? God creates him, gives him every breath, everything that he needs, puts him in paradise. And Adam goes, thanks a lot, but I don't really need you anymore. I think I'll go my own way. See ya. The sin of presumption is living as if God is too nice to carry out his warnings. This community have received kindness from God and then gone, see ya. We're just going to carry on like we were before. Oh, how this speaks to us and how this speaks to me. How fickle, how slow our hearts are. How impossible we find it to be faithful. To love God with all our heart and soul and strength. How easily we fall and fail. Well, it's time to close, otherwise we'll be here for a longer time than we've already been. What a great leader Ezra was. He did not try to control or coerce, but he faithfully proclaimed and taught God's word. He brought light to their eyes and enabled them to see things from God's perspective. Their hearts were convicted of sin and he led them in a process of change that brought hope and a new clarity to their community. And we've already said, what a great picture this is of Jesus. The one who identifies with our failure to be what we ought to be. The one whose love is all the more glorious because it's freely given to people like us who don't deserve it. Stripped, laid bare was Jesus so that we could find forgiveness and new life in him. He is our head who binds us all together in his common grace. And what a great incentive we have to respond to him sincerely and immediately, not next week or next year, but like Shekinah said, let's do this thing and let's do it now. Let's respond to him now.